0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Documentary films are in a golden age, with more being made and widely viewed than ever. Yet their relationship to American history is largely unexplored. Today I will speak with John Wilkman about his book, Screening Reality, How Documentary Filmmakers Reimagined America, published in 2020 by Bloomsbury. Using his own experience as a filmmaker, as well as information from many other interviews and sources, his book looks to expand an understanding of the American experience through documentary film. Welcome, John Wilkman. Welcome, John. How are you today?
1: I'm fine, Joel. I'm looking forward to talking to you.
0: Um, I've interviewed a number of authors about documentary film. I've been doing this podcast for a number of years, and it seems like every time I see a documentary book, I tend to focus on it just to see if it's another way to, to learn more about the topic. So I'd say that that's pretty regular. But in your case, uh, I think your book is such a great examination of the documentary film in America specifically Um, given how important it has become even today, which you talk about. But let's discuss your background, because as people may know, if they recognize your name, you have a background in documentary filmmaking. And you discuss it quite a bit in the prologue of the book, but let's talk a little bit, what are some of your experiences that may have sort of give you an edge as an expert on the topic?
1: Well, as a youngster, I did grow up watching documentaries and being very interested in them. Uh, I really didn't think that I'd ever get involved in in making them or writing them. Um, And I went to college um, at Oberlin uh, College in Ohio, and they didn't have a film department there in those days, but I did volunteer to be the film critic for the campus newspaper. So that allowed me to, to watch a lot of movies. Uh, mainly fiction films, but also documentaries, and also to spend some time reading. So that was the kind of preliminary background I had, because I began to find myself focusing more and more on nonfiction. And in my uh, my junior year uh, at Oberlin, uh, a well-known uh, documentarian from the 1930s, his name is Leo Hurwitz, who did some very powerful films Uh, about um, civil rights, uh, about uh, union organizing, uh, things like that. He came to talk and to show some of his films. And when it was over, I sort of asked him, I was growing, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I asked him, you know, did he know anybody in Los Angeles if I wanted to do a summer job that he would recommend? And he suggested that I get in touch with somebody at a company called David Wolper Productions. Um, and I, I think I'd heard of him by then. And I went to Los Angeles and, and Wolper didn't have uh, a job opening, but he recommended me to another person, a guy named Sherman Grinberg, who ran a film library, which had films going all the way back to the 1890s. And they were assembled into historical documentaries. So I started as a researcher there and worked my little tail off and and really got excited about the history, the combination of history and documentaries. So when I graduated from Oberlin, uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, I headed to New York with the dream of working on what was my favorite um, television documentary series called The 20th Century with Walter Cronkite. And my timing was good because one of the researchers was going to take time off to have a child and I was just there at the right time, and I got hired as a secretary researcher. And that really began my professional career, but also it began my learning the business. It was a great place to learn because the 20th century dealt with historical stuff, but it had people who were really top-notch, including, of course, Cronkite, who gave me you know guidance and information and started, started my career. So from CBS, after there for a while, I... I worked on a series in 1968 called Of Black America, which was the first uh, national network show that tried to deal with, uh, with Black America, the history of Black America. And that was a, a show that not only opened my eyes as a, as a researcher writer, uh, but also America. And I began to be interested in the fact that what are these untold stories, these stories that don't get into the standard history books. So when I left CBS and started my own little tiny company, Uh, I specialized in in, uh, uh, historical documentaries, but also social documentaries that involved uh, introducing people to people they may not have ever met, telling them stories that they may not have heard, taking them to places they may not go to. And that's really what I think a lot of the good documentaries do. So from that point on, for the rest of my life, I've been making documentaries and working as a writer and a director and a producer on almost all my films. In fact, really all all, all my films and later becoming an editor of my own films as well. So when it came time to sort of look back and say, gee, you know, this is sort of an interesting subject. And I was spurred by really what's going on today in the sense that all the arguments about what is truth and what's real and what's fake and all those things. And I said, gee, you know, what documentary filmmakers have been doing from the very beginning they trying to figure that out and try to tell it and show it in their films. So maybe the history of documentaries would be a good way to provide some perspective to what the kind of confusion that's going on now. So that's when I decided to write the book, which I should say is entitled Screening Reality, How Documentary Filmmakers Reimagined America. And it starts right at the beginning of the first film ever made, which really was a um, an attempt to tell the truth and it was a series of short a series of individual photographs of a running horse and you in kentucky might find that of interest because they wanted to prove the fact that a running horse at some time has all four hoofs off the ground at the at a time and these sequential photographs basically show that indeed that was the case and when they were shown these short these individual photographs were shown in 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 Rapid succession, they created an illusion of, of, of motion. So, from the beginning, films, movies, were nonfiction. They were documentaries. The earliest ones were called actualities. They showed street scenes around the world. They showed, you know, uh, famous person uh, people. Uh, they showed, uh, you know, sometimes everyday activities of, of children playing, you know, games and that kind of stuff. So it took a while for fiction to catch on, but in the beginning, it was nonfiction. And when fiction took on, of course, it dominated the movies, but people who made nonfiction didn't go away. So in my book, I tell their story. I I, I continue the story going on from those early days and how it really goes up to the present in the hopes that maybe people who read it will will learn and will be interested in the people who spent their lives making these films and hopefully, uh, you know, having some kind of insight and influence on how people understand the world and other people. So that's what I started out doing, and that's many years later, where I, I succeeded, I think, in doing in, in screening reality.
0: And it's funny because you talk you talk about what is reality. And right at the beginning, even though obviously you're talking about um, documentary films, we have Hearst uh, and the Spanish-American War who was obviously trying to document a war, but using what might be considered aspects of reality that you have to consider just the same way. What was his reality and and those kind of issues? So obviously the film, the, the, the beginning film industry had to deal with the same issues with their documenting of what is real.
1: Well, Hearst is a classic example. He's the... Founder was known as yellow journalism, which is sort of the the ancestor of what we call today fake news. Um, his goal was basically to convince people to support the Spanish-American War and many other things as well. And one of the things about films, it reached so many people. People realized that film could be very persuasive, and he knew he understood that. And many people go and watch the movies, and they and they look on the screen and. And if it's said to be the news or it's said to be uh, the truth uh, they can they can uh, believe it so he's an example from the beginning of uh, of the of the challenges that nonfiction filmmakers had who really were committed and I think most of them are committed to do their best they can they can to say listen i I'm trying to find out what the truth is. I did the best I can. I'm showing you what I found and you can trust that I've done this the best I can do. Obviously I can't tell the entire story. I can't tell every point of view. I can't tell every fact, but I've done my best to to define the truth, to show it in a way that reflects what I found. And that's the struggle. And you sometimes succeed. Sometimes you fail. Sometimes you compromise. That's the the story of, of nonfiction filmmaking in, 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 in its best. But from the days of Hearst, um, you know, it showed that, that, that film could be very effective propaganda. It could be very effective misleading uh, people. So it's a two-sided street. The best of documentary filmmakers try to, to tell the truth as they, as, they, as the best they can. But it's up to audiences also to not close their minds to to things, but to also evaluate and come with alternative sources of information so that they can come up to their own conclusions. And so it's this give and take between filmmakers, the real world, and the audiences who watch documentaries. That's the running theme throughout the book.
0: I remember the first document the first time I could truthfully say a documentary film was on my radar was Michael Moore's Roger and me. And I remember yeah. when it came out, there was because obviously it was being It was being shown in movie theaters. It wasn't, uh, so it was uh, unusual at the time, obviously, when it comes to documentaries. And I remember there was a lot of hue and cry about that he was bending the truth or that he was presenting Mm -hmm. a point of view. And at the time, it occurred to me, well, that's what a documentary is. It's not this, you're thinking of educational films that are supposed, you know, some people would think educational films, which can be documentaries, that are meant to present Facts and details, pretty much like a like a lesson. That's what you, many people thought of as documentaries. When really, as you've pointed out, documentaries w- were working with truth or not truth since the beginning.
1: Well, the thing about Michael Moore, why his, why Roger and me is a kind of a, a landmark film, is the documentaries for the most part were serious, whether they were educational or. They advocated for social change, or they they were travelogues and showed you what the world was like. Um, They tended to be serious. Michael Moore was the first, really, to bring humor into documentaries, particularly documentaries that were advocacy. He had a point of view, and he used humor. So many people criticized him and said, well, gee, he's bending the truth, those kinds of things. But what what he was doing is satire. And more than journalism. Um, there's a there's a wonderful uh, 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 quote that I that I have in the in the book from the film critic uh, Robert Ebert, um, and uh, I'm going to probably not get it straight, but um, he says that some of Roger and me, uh, it, it, uh, I'm not going to get it right, so I'll, I I have to look it up. So I'll just skip past it, but. The thing was, is that again, what Moore did, and later another filmmaker named Errol Morris has done, is to ask uh, viewers to say, "Okay, don't you know? Watch what I'm showing you. Evaluate how credible I am, and bring your own knowledge to the subject, so that together we can come up with some kind of perception of what is real." Um, And so more was coming from the left, political left, and that's where most of documentary, advocacy documentaries have come from. But with Roger and me, and later with uh, his film Fahrenheit 9-11 about uh, the war in Iraq and, and the Bush administration, he stirred up documentaries from the right, which had not been very prevalent in the past. And in recent years, um, right political, right side political documentaries have become hugely influential. Michael Moore was really the first to bring humor and satire to to, to nonfiction, Uh, but what he was trying to say, from his point of view, um, that was based on uh, you know his his uh, his evaluation of, of the facts. And I'll give you an example of a debate on another film that he did was about, uh, it's called Bowling for Columbine. And, and a very you know, successful, but also very controversial film. And there's one sequence in the film where he goes to a bank where they have a a deal that if you deposit, I think, $500, they will give you a gun. And he goes to the bank, and he talks to the teller and and uh, confirms that, indeed, uh, they will give him a gun if he gives them a $500 deposit. And, in fact, in the bank itself, there is a cache of weapons that they keep. They are licensed uh, arms dealers. So he gives them the $500, $500 and he then is shown outside the bank, um, showing the the, uh, the rifle that he had just Uh, apparently had just uh, purchased or just received. Well, critics said, wait a second. The bank got all upset, and they said, wait a second. No, no, this is not true. You know, there's a waiting. We have a background check, and you don't get the gun the same day. You get the gun, usually it's a day or two later. So that the fact that he showed that he had had the gun and, and it appeared that he had got it right away, that he's lying and everything he said should be dismissed because he's a liar. And his supporters said, "Yeah, okay, um, he did he did mislead with that." But the fact remains, the bank yes truly does give away guns. <laughs> and so, what what is the uh, you know how do you how do you balance that? Do you dismiss everything he said because of of how he misled you that you get it right away, or do you say, "Yes, this is a shocking thing that these guns are being given away." So. Those are the kinds of debates and arguments that people who review these films should get involved with and make their decisions about well, you know, what they believe and, and not simply say, oh, okay, well, he tripped up on this one thing, so I think we have to dismiss everything he says.
0: So going back to earlier, as we go back to the book, farther back in the book where in the beginning, basically, right at the beginning there was discussion about whether documentarians could be considered to be covered by the same Mm-hmm. Um, constitutional protections as news media, and we know early on that wasn't necessarily the case, the mutual mutual decision where they were just considered a business and therefore not subject to the same uh, protections necessarily as news. Did that, but then over time and not that much longer, they do, you know, document documentary film, and and as we go further into modern times, do begin to get protection from um, possible uh, government intervention? Well,
1: the 1915 uh, mutual decision you referred to, which I talk about in Screening Reality, um, was was really, the the movie business was just getting off the ground. 1915 is the year that D.W. Griffith produced Birth of a Nation, in which sort of you know, launched the, the kind of a modern sense of movies. Um, and the only kind of nonfiction were were these kind of newsreels and early newsreels. And the argument was that the, that the, uh, the mutual company said that, well, gee, all these censorship boards, there's state censorship and city censorship and even these small communities, each one wants to limit what we say in our films. Um, that that's a kind of an infringement on, on our, our First Amendment rights. Most of the complaints that the censorship boards had had nothing to do with newsreels. They had to do with they didn't like sex in the movies. They didn't like violence in the movies. They tried to stop a boxing match from being uh, distributed as a movie, uh, drinking. They didn't want to show all these limitations. And so documentaries sort of got swept in there. But they really weren't documentaries as we know them now. So over time, as documentaries began to develop, particularly starting in 1922 with the movie Nanook of the North by Robert Flaherty, documentaries as we know them now began to emerge. And then basically people realized this is something separate from entertainment. Most movies were considered, there's just nothing but entertainment. And that slowly people realized, well, there's this other side of the movie business, which is sort of, and it can be sort of entertainment. But it's also something different. It's it's you know it's fact based. It's, it attempts to describe and to show the real world. And so, as our people argued over what is documentary, slowly it became aware uh, that this is a kind of journalism. And it didn't really get until the nineteen sixties or seventies where basically it was acknowledged that indeed um, documentaries are part of public discourse. They're not strictly entertainment. And the mutual decision uh, uh, basically was uh, was uh, uh, no longer applied to people's attitude toward documentaries. But it took a long time, and it's still going on today. People still argue about documentaries: are they are they entertainment? Are they you know journalism? Are they uh, are they a, you know a scientific view of the real world? Are they biased? Or whatever they are? And that argument continues today. And but it's clearly defined that there is a difference between a documentary and a so-called feature film. In screening reality, I use an example, for example, as people debate, you know, what is real, what's not real in a documentary. And I say, well, listen, the difference between a fiction film about a murder and a documentary about a murder is the certainty that the victim in the documentary is unavailable for a second take. <laughs> and... And True. yeah, you could argue about this, this, this and that, but there is a difference, and 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 it's not clear cut as as, as as it should be, but um, there is a difference between fiction films and nonfiction films. The well, argument,
0: is, and of course, uh, yeah, you're mentioning the first major uh, fiction film, Birth of a Nation, is an interesting example, given that the first major fiction film was a docudrama. And uh, where at yep. least he was trying. Part of the film is Griffith trying to make a present his own uh, belief of what the Civil War and race relations were were and how they were built, but it was based in what he considered to be reality.
1: Absolutely, and and and, and it was it was very much the common belief of the Civil War uh, in for most of America and particularly in the South, but, but even most right. of America. Uh, that that so the film was hugely successful across the country. Uh, you know, it portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes. They're the heroes of the film. Uh, they ride to the rescue of of, of, of you know African Americans taking over government and doing all kinds of terrible things. And that was what most Americans believed in 1915, and and and, and frankly, to this day, there's certainly people believe that as well. Um, so documentaries such as Ken Burns's Civil War series attempted to bring historical perspective to, uh, by using factual material to what was essentially uh, Griffiths and the, and the beliefs of many uh, about the idea of the Civil War as this great lost cause. And uh, uh, Burns tried to, 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 to show, well, what was actually being fought about, what were the actual situations, what were the actual things that took place, and to be a, uh, to be to provide as kind of a factual basis to begin a discussion, because it's still an ongoing discussion, a discussion about the importance of the Civil War, probably certainly one of the most important historical events in American history.
0: So, going back, to continue with this discussion of tr- what is truth, we can. We can talk about uh, some of the, as you pointed out, uh, Nanook of the North is considered by many to be the first real full-length documentary film, or at least when most people talk about it, about documentary film, it's the one that gets recognized. And yet, as you pointed out in the book, in Screening Reality, there are, right from the beginning, there were issues with Nanook of the North and how quote-unquote truthful it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the running themes that I have running through screening reality is the role of technology in uh, how nonfiction films could be made and were made. Going back before uh, Nanook, even through Nanook, is that film equipment was heavy, it was bulky, you needed a tripod, if you were anyplace else outside a studio, you need to hand crank the camera. Uh, So we're all spoiled by having people run around with these cameras and show everything, you know, to make a movie in the 19 teens and certainly through Nanook in the North was a physical task. Um, And so you had to apply control over what was being shot because you couldn't respond quickly and spontaneously. But at the same time, there is this attitude that, that, Clarity had. Um, I mean, he loved the Inuit peoples of Canada where it takes place. It takes place in, 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 in the eastern shore of Hudson Bay. And he wanted to convey uh, their life. But in those days, the really models for that kind of storytelling was still drama. So his idea was to really to do a drama based on fact. And so Combined with the technical difficulties of shooting in, you know, an icy, slippery, you know, distant area, um, he basically needed to structure the story. So yes, indeed, there are true and you know, Inuit peoples are in the film. They do hunt seals. They do live in igloos. They do all these things, but Flaherty needed to to structure it. Uh, he needed to do the, the, the shooting process in a way that he could control the action, and secondarily, uh, he wanted to bring elements of what was commonly seen in the movies of of drama, you know. And so the drama of Nanook is that there's this constant fear of starvation, and that that is driving the drama. At the same time, again, he needed to 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 make the story strong. So the character Nanook, uh, his wife Nyla. Uh, the little children that are in the film, they are true Inuit. They do live there. They do do that kind of thing. But the main character is not a man named Nanook. He is, in fact, a seal hunter with another name. The woman who plays his wife is not his wife. She's another person, uh, also Inuit. Uh, and But they were chosen both for their looks and their appearance, which are standards that were applied to nonfiction films. So it's this mix already, this mix that's sort of determined by technology and the camera equipment of the day, but also of this transitional feeling of, which seems old in the day, but in fact now is very, very contemporary, of how do you make a documentary, a factual documentary, have some of the elements in the drama of of fiction without sacrificing the credibility of the documentary. And that is a battle that goes right back to 1922.
0: And. There's so much early on, or obviously throughout the entire book. I hate, you hate to miss things, but then we can move ahead to World War Two, and where the mm-hmm. whole issue of what is reality becomes government becomes part of the government and its expansions of uh, using documentary films as a way to help with the war effort.
1: Right. Well, I I just I want to go back because there there are. There are some, the critical early period really is the 1930s, where documentaries, that's where the idea of the involvement of the government becomes to be debated. Also, that's where what we know today as activists or advocacy documentaries are born. As I say in the book, I mean, before the 1930s, all a nonfiction filmmaker asked of an audience was the price of admission and their attention. In the 1930s, filmmakers began, began to ask their audiences to change the world. That was new. Right. And the 30s was this highly charged political atmosphere. And then set against that is the movie business, which is the large corporate entity who controlled the theaters. They control what people saw. So if you were an independent documentary filmmaker, it was very difficult for you to get your movie shown in a the theater because the theaters were owned by these large studios. And particularly if you are coming from a leftist position, whether it's socialist or even communist position that some of the early advocacy filmmakers were coming from, your ability to get your film shown is even harder. And so politically, for example, is during the 1930s, some of the classic films that were made uh, under the New Deal, um, uh, President Roosevelt realized the powers of, of of movies and wanted to get across, first of all, the problems the country faced, and what the solutions, particularly the New Deal solutions, could be to that. So he commissioned a man named Per Lorenz to make two of the classic movies, or more than that, but two real classics called The Plow That Broke the Plains and The River, both of which were involved with environmental challenges, uh, the the Dust Bowl of of the Great Plains, uh, and encouraging uh, the management of the Mississippi River, which eventually became the TVA. So some people said, yeah, great, people should be aware of the problems our country faces. Other people said, no, this is just, you know, pushing, particularly Republicans who are opposed to to Roosevelt. No, this is just a way of Roosevelt pushing his New Deal on top of things by using movies. Or other people said, why should we advertise what's wrong with our country? You know, yes, indeed, there's a dust bowl, and yes, and people who are starving, and yes, indeed, the rivers are overflowing. But do we have to, you know, show this on movie screens? Why do we have to, to, to do this? And so again, documentary filmmakers were often telling messages that people in power didn't want to, to, to be told. So when World War II begins, the idea that, gee, you know, we don't like what 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 uh, Lorentz did—he's using he's government propaganda—suddenly switched. And now, all of a sudden, we need documentaries. They're a powerful weapons to help us win the war. So that Hollywood, major Hollywood directors like John Ford and John Houston and William Wyler and George Stevens and Frank Capra all signed up and made documentaries. And they did have an enormous effect on the war, not just in propaganda, but it was so important to train uh, soldiers. And to prepare them for combat, and so people like Walt Disney made films that showed, you know, how you, um, you know, navigate an aircraft, you know, or how, how you do various kinds of things that that are important for a soldier to know. And so movies suddenly became, you know, they, you know, they, they were supposedly oh, they're awful in the thirties, they're all propaganda. Uh, then suddenly in the in the forties in the war years, yes, they're propaganda, but that's good. We want it. We need it. So it's an interesting period because these are terrific filmmakers, the most important American filmmakers of the era. They had never done a documentary. They didn't know anything about documentaries. They were used to scripts. They used to studios. So the experience they had in World War II really changed their careers. So afterward, many of them were very different, or at least were, were more thoughtful filmmakers of the experience that they had doing, dealing with reality during World War II.
0: Speaking of which, even though this is more post-war there's one documentary that's worth reaching out uh, looking for for anyone who has never seen it and that's the atomic cafe which includes yeah. scenes from many of these documentaries you've been talking about the the, the government documentaries that were produced to first off for training soldiers i mean there's the one example where they discuss uh, it's the day before a, a bomb you know a, a an a an bomb test and they show the, the quote-unquote chaplain talking to a soldier about what to expect, and it's it's an interesting view of it. And the whole film Atomic Cafe is just snippets and sections from the from various documentaries, mostly government uh, films, but also political documentaries, meaning generally trying to show the positive aspect of of nuclear energy and nuclear uh, and yep. the bomb.
1: Yep, I, I talk about that, and and in the other side of the coin is a film that I also would. I mean, by, by the way, you know, Atomic Cafe was a big inspiration for Michael Moore. It really would have inspired him to become a filmmaker because it used humor. It's funny when you watch right. the film. It's funny, um, and but a film that was done after the war, in nineteen forty six, by John Huston, which is also I think available online, is a film called Let There Be Light. And it's the story of returning vets from World War II, who had PTSD, which was unrecognized at the time. They had a number of mental and physical problems that had, that had been resulted of their experiences in combat. And the film is a, still a very moving film as they go to a hospital, and they are treated for these various, you know, issues that they face. And um, the general theme of the film is that, that yes. These are horrible experiences. Yes, therapy can help these men. And yes, they can return to society. So they shouldn't be rejected. They shouldn't be. This is an idea that we went through in Vietnam, but they were going through in 1946, with World War II. Well, when the film was shown to the military brass, they were angered. And they said, this will never see the light of day. And Houston asked why. And they said, this is an anti-war film. And Houston said, if I ever make a pro-war film, you can take me out and shoot me, he said. And sure enough, he's tried to screen the film at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And military MPs came and confiscated the print. It was not shown in public for 20 years. And the argument was, oh, well, these men did not know that they were going to be you know, in this film and you've invaded their privacy. Well, they all did know they were being filmed, but that was an argument you could make. But uh, Houston's argument was, no, what this film showed to people is that what war does to you for real, it's not heroic. You don't emerge from this, you know, like Superman. War is a terrible experience, and the military did not want Americans to know that. So there's the two sides of the coin again, and the power of documentaries.
0: Yeah, even to the effect that one of the things that you usually hear about, not just... uh current war veterans, but even particularly during World War II, was how little anyone wanted to talk about it when they came back. Yep. And yep, yep. we all, I mean, my father was a World War II vet. He went over on D-Day a little bit after D-Day, but he never talked about the war, and I don't even know exactly what he did because he just never talked about it. So, but, yeah, so, I mean, that, that definitely I understand fully and we know that even now, in fact, that's still part of the issue with with PTSD is trying to get people willing to express what their feel, you know, what they felt and, and to, to try to get past some of their issues.
1: Well, I think that part of it is that people don't want to relive it. I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I was in the army, but I'm not a combat veteran by any means, uh, but people don't want to relive it. Uh, they're maybe embarrassed that they were afraid. They were terrorized, they, were, they, are, they, are, um, they are not more than embarrassed. Sometimes what they saw was horrific and what they saw their fellow soldiers do was horrific. And the last thing you wanna do is to, is to do that. So documentaries, that's a classic example of, of, of a film. It was trying to do something in a kind of a propaganda way to make people say, gee, these vets have problems but we can, we can deal with these problems and they should be welcomed back in our society. And the opposing people saying we don't want to talk about this. Don't show this at all. And that's constantly going back and forth in the history of documentaries.
0: Well, by this point, then we've got uh, documentaries, mostly shorts, become very important for the the movie the movie theater owners because it became the norm that a typical movie showing would include newsreels, short subjects, uh, maybe a B version B movie rather than just one feature film, which of course is the way we see it today. So obviously you talk mm-hmm. about that in in some of the discussions about you know how suddenly we were seeing all kinds of documentaries about uh, both the educational kind that might be shown in schools, but also the kind of educational or travelogues that were being shown uh, in movie theaters.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm most proud of about screening reality, and I hope it's it's part of its appeal is how broad and varied uh, the films I discuss are. I go beyond what's sort of the traditional kind of documentaries. When you immediately think of documentaries, Um, I deal with newsreels. I deal with training films. I deal with uh, uh, short subjects in theaters. Um, I deal with, 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 uh, you know, early television. I deal with educational films. I deal with home movies. All these are raw material sources of attempts to capture and to convey the real world and with varying success. Uh, But it's really important to understand that documentary filmmaking and filmmakers are a very broad and wide-ranging and I think really quite fascinating group of people. So among the, the films that you would see in theaters in the late 40s, um, one of the most popular series, which also became on television later, was Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. And it was a series about, you know, you probably could still catch it every once in a while, just maybe on DVD. It was one of the early nature films. It was early uh, animal films about nature. and it's, But it's very much a Disney movie. Uh, I mean, it's all footage of animals. There's no people in in these films. And you see incredible photography of, of, of animals doing what they're doing, but they are what one critic called Disney-fied. They have They have human characteristics. They're brave, they're comic, they have families, they have jobs. Um, they put it in terms that are, are, are human, although no humans appear in the films. So when you watch them, they're very entertaining. And for example, one of the early films was called Seal Island. And um, each year, the, the female seals uh, all come and arrive at this island where uh, the, the male seals are waiting. And when Disney showed the sequence in the musical score, you hear, here comes the bride. And uh, so people laughed and thought, you know, it was it was a true thing, but he put it in an entertaining context. So when you look at the films today, you say, oh, gee, you know, these are sort of silly. But really, they had a surprising impact on a, on a generation, a post-war generation and a 50s generation. And you could really argue that they, through their entertainment, Basically, encouraged a new kind of sensitivity and awareness of the environment, an environmental movement that really blossomed many decades later and continues. So, you never know what effects various kinds of documentaries are going to have, but you know, in some way, they can influence people in ways that, that are unexpected. Um, and, you know, the, sh- the short subjects, most of them were strictly for humor, but are for entertainment. But they often, uh, uh, you know, p- conveyed information, or they just showed the world in a different way that opened people's minds. And so particularly, travel logs were very, you know, important. There's a travelogue series for MGM called uh, by a, by a producer called Travel Talks, and they were in color. And you went around the world, and you saw things. And people sat in their comfortable seats, and people, many of whom would never leave their their town, their small town, uh, or their city, could go to India or go to Africa. or could go to China, and, uh, and and the movies would take them there.
0: And then, of course, by this point in the post-war, one of the great, one of the most uh, technologically important func- uh, things happened, and that was the release of television to the consumer. Obviously, we know mm-hmm. television had been invented before the war, but it didn't really start to be rolled out until after the war, and of course, suddenly then we had networks and television stations that had to fill time. And Mm -hmm. while they had their entertainment shows, it also became a place where documentary and news documentary and that kind of material suddenly had a place to be shown.
1: Yeah, I mean, far and away, the most airtime was consumed by uh, entertainment programming, I think that news and documentaries in television, even you know in the 50s and 60s, were less than 5% of airtime. But since there were only three networks, uh, and every many people turned to the networks for their news in addition to the newspapers and radio, uh, they had enormous influence. And of course, two of the most influential people in the history of, of documentaries is Edward R. Murrow and Fred Friendly and Moreau had been a radio reporter during World War II, and Friendly had worked in radio as well. And they launched a series called See It Now in 1951, if my memory is is correct. Um, and this was a, it was a documentary series, and it was meant to do more than just what the daily news was, but also to, to tell stories at length. And one of the things that... When broadcasting came to the United States, was different than when it, were, it was in Britain or in Europe. Uh, in Britain and Europe, broadcasting was looked upon as a public service, and so it was sponsored by the government by by taxing. And in the United States, they said, No, 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 we don't want that. We don't want the government involved. It'll be sponsored by advertisers. It'll be advertising sponsors. So that had a great effect on the kind of documentaries that could be shown because advertisers didn't want to have controversy. They, they wanted to encourage people to buy their products. They didn't want to make them angry or upset. So, see it now uh, was one of those very landmark programs where they said, no, you know, in our little less than five percent of television time, there should be a place for basically hard facts—the things that are you know challenging. So the most, uh, most legendary program that they did was a program about Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was a senator from Wisconsin who, who was a virulently anti-communist. And, but basically, in his, in his enthusiasm or, or whatever, he would basically slur people and say, you know, this person is a communist. He, at one point, he claimed that President Eisenhower was a secret communist um and that the government of truman's government was filled with with communists and they needed to be rooted out and that the movie business was a communist uh inspired to to uh, to to uh, to make us all uh, to convince us to to uh, to be communists and so his investigations uh started what was known as a blacklist in the movie business where it was never an official list, but if you were, if McCarthy, whether it was a, hey, he, in most cases he had little or no evidence, mostly no evidence. If he called you a communist, you didn't work again. That was it, and uh, so it was very, very um, a frightening time for a lot of people. So very famous people were accused of being communists. I mean, uh, Orson Welles, the director, uh, Leonard Bernstein, the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, even the, the famous stripper Gypsy Rose Lee who had spoken out in favor of civil rights, was called a communist. So if you were for civil rights or you were for, um, you know, uh, Social Security or you were for all these things that were looked upon as as, as socialistic or communistic, uh, uh, McCarthy was going to name you as uh, being a threat to the U.S. government. So Morrow and Friendly decided to do a program that he said that we shouldn't be living in fear. And they decided to do a program on television about McCarthy. And it was very hard-hitting, and it was a time when the country was divided. Not unlike today, where, you know, people felt, gee, maybe we are should be frightened of communists. Maybe my neighbor's a communist. You know, who knows? Maybe, you know, I, maybe the movies I'm watching are communist propaganda, and so people were afraid. They 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 didn't know what to think. And uh, Morrow and Friendly did this very hard-hitting documentary where they used mainly um, um, McCarthy's words to, uh, indict him as being a, a demagogue, being a, a person who was stirring up fear unfairly of, of unfairly, uh, uh, you know, uh, indicting people without any evidence. And slowly the, 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 country wasn't only because of that, but the country began to turn around and even the the Congress ultimately, uh, turned on McCarthy and, uh, they said, you know, you've gone too far. And, uh Eventually, uh, uh, he was he was uh, uh, censured. Censured, McCarthy was censured by by the by the Congress. Um, But in the process of this, the advertisers who were supporting, uh, see it now and all that, and there were other documentaries being done. You know, they were getting more and more anxious, as was the heads and the owners of the television networks, who really made money from their advertisers and wanted to keep as many people as happy as possible. And slowly during the 60s and into the 70s, documentaries disappeared from the commercial networks. And uh, so today, you don't see anything on CBS or NBC or ABC, uh, you know, like in the See It Now documentary. You see them on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or, or, uh, you know, Netflix or or HBO, but not in the commercial networks. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so that... That was part of the evolution of documentaries, again and and again, and uniquely in the in the economics and politics of, of of America.
0: Of course, now you mentioned the three, the four, now four major networks, but then there is the fourth, the fifth network, what was originally one of the 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 original fourth network, which actually made its made so much of its uh, reputation by documentaries, and that of course is PBS. Yes. And PBS, PBS, I mean, that's one of the things I was just about to mention is speaking of PBS, American Experience just did a documentary about McCarthy, a biography Mm -hmm. of McCarthy. And they actually show quite a bit of the footage of the of um, of Murrow's material, including the the final army hearings, which most people felt is what finally let uh, what brought McCarthy down. But obviously, PBS becomes a major place for documentary filmmakers.
1: Yes, and and very important to this day. Um, and and again, it was caught in the politics of American politics. Um, again, unlike the BBC or television uh, in in Europe, um, the the um, the when they looked at public television. Early on in the 50s, when they were starting, and they were starting, and eventually into the 60s when it began, um, there were people who argued basically that, that first of all, they said we need to set aside a non-commercial part of the broadcasting spectrum for public television. And people argued against that, and they called it literally a socialist giveaway. Why should we give away this precious airtime for non-profit purposes? And then the other question is, well, how are you going to pay for this? And Morrow's idea was, well, listen, you know, the commercial networks are taking all kinds of profit. Why don't they, you know, give a percentage of their profits to a kind of an institution that would sponsor public television, independent public television? Well, that didn't work. So they came up with a compromise, which was, okay, uh, we'll have a a, government government. Uh, organization called CPB that will have uh, appointed commissioners, uh, will get foundations, independent foundations, and will have viewers to contribute, and um, will uh, we'll sponsor it that way. Um, and that was sort of a, co- a compromise. The problem is, is because of the political connections to CPB and, and even foundations, many of which that were connected to, to, to corporations, you still did not totally get away from uh, the fears of doing things that were too strong or too controversial, but they still did them. So in the early days, early, early days, that was another thing. They said the stations, there was not really a network like today where CBS, there's a CBS station. And when you turn on CBS here, it's the same thing as in Kentucky and the same thing is going on in in New York for the network. Um, there really wasn't a network. So an individual station could say, I'm not going to run this. I don't like this. So there are many document, or certainly more doc- documentaries that were made, but for, for uh, NET, which was before uh, PBS and PBS, in which the local station was, I don't like this. Um, I, I'm not going to run it. And so controversial films, like a very controversial film called Tongues Untied, uh, about, made by a gay black filmmaker named Marlon Riggs. It was very graphic. It openly talked about, uh, you know, gay relationships, sexual relationships, and strong language and all that kind of stuff. Thirty percent of the PBS stations said I'm not running this. And early on, there was a in the Vietnam War, there was a documentary that actually showed what the impact of the war was on. North Vietnamese civilians. And again, some stations said, this is communist propaganda. It's not, we should be doing films promoting the war in Vietnam and this is not, we're not going to run it. So, over time, doc, you know, documentaries on PBS, which are really the gold standard these days in the traditional documentary field, still felt pressures, political and economic pressures to this day. So when Nixon became president, almost the first thing he wanted to do was to totally dismantle public television, which had been started by Lyndon Johnson. And um, that couldn't happen. So when Reagan came in, he said, well, you know, we'll keep it, but they've got to come up with their own funding. We're not going to give any any." taxpayer money to them and um so that led to what we see today to some extent the, the, the public funding continued but that led today what we see today is a kind of a quasi advertisement so you have you know corporate corporations sponsored like general motors sponsors the films of ken burns um, So we were we're always struggling with this very unique American attitude about the relationship between government, private enterprise, and the public interest, and that continues with PBS. But PBS really, until the 80s and 90s, uh, was really the the gold standard of documentaries, not necessarily in stirring up debates and issues, but informing people, entertaining people um, in a thoughtful way. And that's what they do today. And I spent a lot of time talking about the series Frontline, which uh, is really the, the closest that PBS comes to the older traditions of See It Now and, and programs like that. Um, but all that changed with the coming of cable. And for the first time, PBS had competition for documentaries from two big entities. One was HBO, and the other was Discovery Channel. And Discovery Channel's idea was that we're going to make a a, a we're going to run PBS-style programming, but it's going to be uh, <clears throat> uh, advertiser-sponsored, and uh, we're going to do the same thing that PBS does. We're not going to get into controversy necessarily, but we're going to tap into the educational film market. We're going to compete with them, and and we won't have to worry about the government, you know, poking around and trying to, to change what we're doing. And we don't have to worry about <coughs> raising money because we'll get that from advertising. The other side was HBO and HBO led by a woman named Sheila Evans, said, you know, we don't want to be PBS. We think PBS is boring. We wanted to be un we, we, we want to be challenging and, and unusual and unfettered and, 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 and uh, push the envelope of what could be shown on television. and, because that's what people want to see. They don't want to see, you know, you know, serious people talking about serious issues. No, you know, maybe we're gonna have sex on TV. We're gonna, you know, do murder mysteries that are, you know, have all kinds of, you know, dark secrets to them. And and so that really appealed to what what many Americans were hoping to get from documentaries, which they they had always liked. So HBO became uh, the really the, the forerunner of. Uh, the, what we call today the golden age of documentaries, where more people began watching documentaries than ever before, and they did serious work. They did Spike Lee's documentary about the impact of Katrina. They they did his uh, films about the civil rights movement, but also they really attracted people with 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 uh, with films that sort of. Uh, were, were, were sensational in a kind of a way, and 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 the people that people wanted to watch and didn't feel they were being educated. They wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, entertained in, in a way that 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 uh, they found exciting.
0: And of course, and they also did sports and, and, and sports documentaries. They, that was another thing they they worked on very early on as part of their documentaries. Yeah, yeah well they,
1: And and so meanwhile, Discovery, which had started out with high hopes. Uh, and still is, still broadcast good stuff, they began to find themselves getting pushed in a direction that the founder of Discovery, John Hendricks, did not anticipate or didn't necessarily want to go. And there's a f- famous story that, that, that uh, he uh, was approached by uh, a, a young producer who had an idea um, for a, a nonfiction-style program, that had been adapted from a, a Swedish documentary, which was basically the story of these individuals who were set out in the wilderness to survive on their own. And uh, you would, they would compete for, 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 for things. And, and uh, it would be a kind of a competition. And Hendricks looked at it and said, well, you know, this is not the kind of, Programming it seemed sort of manipulative or seemed you know unusual for Discovery so he passed on it. Well, the producer was a guy named Mark Burnett, right. and the series that he was suggesting was Survivor. Right, and that became you know the early one of the early hits of a phenomenon called reality TV, which is the era that we're living in now. Right, in, in which this idea of what's true and not true and what's you know, enacted and not reenacted and why am I telling you this kinds of things are challenging. So for the most part people when reality T V started and this is, goes back to the to the early two thousands and the nineteen nineties, people said, Oh, it's just sort of mindless entertainment and you know and, and you know, you don't take it seriously and sure it's not really true, but it's sort of fun to watch and, and, and you know, why, why are you taking it seriously? until a star of reality TV was made president of the United States. Uh, and so what I talk about in screening reality is, is that whatever the relationship of reality TV to what we call traditional documentaries is, it basically has had an effect on what we demand as viewers for the truth. And, and, as a famous quote by by uh, uh, by uh, by uh, Phineas uh, T. Barnum, who says that he discovered that even when audiences know they're being deceived, they prefer to be entertained, and that's the situation we're in now, in that that people are basically. Um, looking at television and saying, okay, well, maybe it's not true, but some of it must be, and it's not scripted, so it must be truer than a film that's scripted, and they're not really actors, they're real people, so that must be truer than if they were actors, and all of a sudden, uh, what we demand from the truth on television, and supposedly in the broad spectrum of nonfiction, begins to change until suddenly it sort of slips away, and what is true and what's not true becomes very blurred.
0: And, But as you say, I mean, uh, what ha- it, it has become the norm that just about every cable channel that's not uh, showing entertainment, quote-unquote entertainment broadcasts, have got some sort of reality or documentary-type style material that all, as you point out, comes from this whole concept of uh, what started with Survivor and some of the, the, the previous uh, examples.
1: Yeah, I mean the the the, the one thing that, that is old fashioned. you know, I'm I'm writing an article, I hopefully it will appear in in, in 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 a newspaper soon, in which I look at three documentaries about families that illuminate how documentaries have changed over the years and how factual our attitudes toward factual material has changed. Uh, that remain influential today. The first is Nanak of the North, the story of the Inuit family, and I tell that story. The second is a documentary from 1973 called An American Family. Um, somewhat called the cinema verite is the style that, that, that developed in the 1960s with lighter and easier equipment to, to 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 move around, and 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 you could really follow the action in ways that were unusual an American family told the story of this family in in Santa Barbara named the louds. And, um, we sort of lived with them through the camera crew that was there and they became in the process. It became more than just simply a, a, a portrait of a family. The people began to look at them and say, you know, what effect is the filmmaking process having on this family? And are they performing? Their lives or are they living their lives, and that was a kind of a suggestive forerunner of what we look at when we look at the Kardashians or the, uh, you know, the, the many kind of reality TV shows that, that focus on families. Then the the third family documentary that I talk about is Ken Burns's family, the Roosevelts, an intimate history, and that's a traditional documentary. It's got real photographs because, you know, the narrator tells facts that are confirmed by history. It has interviews with authorities about the Roosevelts. It reads from letters that they wrote. Um, And it's still, that style is still very popular. Um, But it's in stark contrast because it's based on an attempt to gather what, what I consider evidential truth and yes it's dramatic the story of the roosevelts i mean it's an incredible story of a family and their ups and downs and and their 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 successes and failures and so it has this element of drama to it and it's told with that kind of emotion and drama but basically it's all based on evidential truth and what i argue in screening reality is is that's becoming increasingly missing in some of the the modern documentaries that are made because from the very beginning Documentary filmmakers had to balance making their movie entertaining and making their movie credible. And on a sliding scale, you can go one or the other. And it's very tempting to make it more entertaining because you want a bigger audience, you want more acclaim. If you go too far to credible, people will find it boring. Where do you find it without without losing the key thing that a documentary filmmaker has is trust. If a, if a documentary filmmaker loses their trust with an audience, they really lost everything. And that's what's happening now. We've lost our trust in what people are telling us. And we lost the ability to evaluate evidential truth. And so we get into a situation where we're being lied to every day and it doesn't matter, not just in the presidency, but in movies we watch documentaries. And suddenly we don't care. we, be happy to be entertained and that becomes critical as in the last chapter of the book i talk about virtual reality where basically you'll ultimately have experiences where you won't be able to tell the manufactured reality from the reality you see walking around in the world and what's going to happen then there's technology that can actually change existing footage There's a classic example I talk about of a speech that Barack Obama gave when he was a president, when he was president of the United States. And the words he says are from an interview he did when he was a student at Harvard. And his facial expressions and his mouth and everything are manipulated, so you cannot tell that what he looks like he's saying, in fact, he's not saying.
0: And that is of course part of the issue nowadays where everybody has access to this technology. It's not something that's backing in the at the beginning of documentaries with its bulky cameras and the inability to the the hard work was necessary in order to produce them till now where technology and and the and other aspects have allowed people to as you point out in the last regular chapter of the book the fact that we now have everybody can be a filmmaker type issues, and that's the kind of thing that uh, can cause issues such as that where reality is so manipulated that you just don't know what truth is anymore.
1: Well, you, you, but I, 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 documentary filmmakers tend to be optimists, and I'm an optimist, because early on, if you went back to the Middle Ages, people would say, oh my God, everybody's learning how to read and write. What's going to happen next? Because you know now the, 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 the church and the priests and, and those are the ones who can read and write, they have control over the information we get and we, you know they're they're the ones that we turn to. What happens if some villager can can write a you know a letter himself? Well, it turned out fairly good. That literacy was good. And I think if we do it the right way, film and video literacy can be good too. Uh it can be good in the sense that at least by, by, by making our own movies, we can see and understand better how they're made. And like a professional, I can spot what a filmmaker is doing when they're distorting the truth often very easily, or certainly relatively easily. But an average person would never know. I can say that cut couldn't have been made without doing this to the camera, or this looks like it's been edited and that kind of stuff. Well, if you can learn to make your own movie, you know, maybe... Uh, you know that would be a, a, a way for you to become a more um, uh, uh, thoughtful and accurate and 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 critical viewer. So it could turn out well. It could turn out poorly. But you don't know. But as I but, but as I say in the in the in the last uh, chapter of the book, and it's a quote from um, uh, James uh, President James Madison of one of the founding fathers. Uh, he says, and I say that, you know, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. And that's the crisis we face, and it really is a crisis in my mind. It's a crisis of credibility.
0: Well, obviously, your book has got so much in it, and even though we've been talking for more than an hour, we haven't even scratched <laughs> <just> the surface <laughs> of everything that's in the book. I, I really want to make sure that people reach out and read screening reality because there is just so much information and the background is so great. So many of these folk people, and these names people may have known, but they may not know particularly who they were or all the background of some of the famous people who were involved in the processes over the years. So it's great for both historical purposes, but also as a way of understanding do- documentaries better. So there's no question in my mind that this uh, this book. Uh, you, it's it's just a perfect example of somebody if somebody's looking for what I would consider to be a readable popular um, history of the documentary film in this country
1: well I appreciate you all very much and, and I, I, I I tend to, to get too excited about the subject as you might imagine and so I, I hope that my talking at length doesn't make your editing too difficult
0: <laughs> no it won't be well thank you for discussing the book and I'm glad we had a great chance to talk great okay. Thanks to John Wilkman, his book definitely adds to our understanding of the history and importance of documentaries. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.